Uh, we are going to continue uh, through Romans. We are done with chapter one. Do I hear? <laughs> I don't know how long it's been. I don't keep track. Um, but we are we starting in on chapter two today. As we do, as we come to the to the word of the Lord, we are going to read from our Old Testament readings from Isaiah chapter one. And I don't really comment too much on the Old Testament readings, but I do want you to see the connective tissue between what we read in the Old Testament and what we teach in the New Testament. This is God's unfolding redemption to us, and it all hangs together. So Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. We'll actually start in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will, I, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cumber field, like a besieged city. The Lord of hosts had not left us a few, I'm sorry, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offering, incense, and the is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity with the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil and learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow, though the red like crimson, they'll be like be, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there's that warning to God's own people, but always that hope of grace as we turn to him. So now Romans chapter 2. 
Romans 2, 1 through 11. Paul's talking about coming off of Romans 1, our sinfulness. We've talked about that for several sermons now. And we see in our day and age that hand of God, that hand of restraint and being lifted and being under that judgment of, of abandonment, if you will. God is leaving us to our own devices and we're seeing where that's leading us as a people in our sinfulness. But now in chapter 2, God turns to not, not the pagans out there, but to those inside the church, to his covenant people. So 2 and into 3, he is speaking to those who ought to know him, who ought to love him, who ought to serve him. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. Again, I pray that you would be with all of us and your people this morning as we come before your word. It is solemn, Lord, and I pray that we look into our hearts and our lives, Lord, that we seek to serve you, to honor you, to worship you as you demand, as you command, as you deserve. So, Lord, please be with us. Help us to engage fully in our minds and our hearts. I pray that you would be with me to bring forth your word with power, with truth, Lord God, that it would penetrate our hearts, that we would be truly convicted and transformed and changed by your spirit as we put into practice the things that you give us to learn, as we learn, as we grow, as we seek, Lord, to do that which we are called to do. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. All right, we enter this section and I want to just want, we should do it with great humility, great circumspection, like in, look into your own hearts. Really take this time as we go through this section to examine yourself and your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because unbelief is not simply out there like we've seen in the past, past sermons, but it's also in here. Right? And that's what Paul was making plain. Paul now turns to the Jews, to the covenant people, to those who are set apart by God. But it's those covenant people and those Jews who need the Lord, Jesus Christ, just as much as the pagans in chapter 1. Understand, we are saved by grace alone. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and we need that grace. So this section, uh, chapter 2 and into chapter 3, really should serve as a strong, strong warning to those in the church, to those uh, who, are, who, in, who are in covenant with the Lord. Don't count on being in church. Don't count on being in covenant with the Lord 
to save you from hell. Only Jesus Christ could do that. Amen? And praise God. And then we're in the church and we live accordingly. So this is a strong warning, man. You can't use Christianity as a cover for your sin. And so many seek to do. Well, I go to church and I'm a good person. And, you know, my sin is a little more respectable than, than that sin out there. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a better place. No, no, no. Listen to what he says right away. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, who pass, uh, any, every one of you who judges. In the first part of that first verse. There, he's, when he says you have no excuse, don't think because you're in here that you have an excuse to sin. Or that you're going to get away with it. We're still going to answer to him. He says that word is, is for excuses. There's no justification for your sin. No defense. No reason. No um, right for your sin. No excuse for it. Says it's, it's inexcusable, as a matter of fact. You can't say, we can't say that we love God, that we love him so much, but then go on sinning continually without remorse, without repentance, without feeling it very deeply. We're not saying that we're perfect as Christians. Obviously, we're not. We're being sanctified. But there's a difference of what's going on here. And that's a, sometimes it's a subtle difference, but it's a deep difference, to be sure. And that's what I want you to be aware of, what I want us to be aware of. I want you to listen to this and get this um, down in your minds and your hearts. Verses 1 to 3, when he says, Therefore you have no excuse, you, O man, who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why do you condemn yourself? Because you, the judge, you practice the very same things. We know that judgment of, the judgment of God falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God. That's a big deal right there as we talk about that. What's a chief complaint of unbelievers against Christians? What are like two chief complaints? That we are <laughs> judgmental hypocrites, right? We're so judgy and we're so hypocritical. And unfortunately, far too often, we prove the world right in that way. And I can't stand when people say, come to church, we're, you know, you're all hypocrites. Yeah, we are hypocrites. Okay, they're hypocrites in the church, but we shouldn't be like that. We ought to be different. Okay, and there is a difference. Now, these two ideas that, that Paul is dealing with of, of you know, judgment and hip, hypocrisy, they're, listen to this, they are true traits of those who are merely religious. So even within the church, within the visible church, there are the wheat and the tares. Right? There are those who truly believe and those who merely profess to believe. Get that? It's very important to understand. So under, within the church, you have these judgmental hypocrisy, especially because underneath that religion, those people are just as lost as the pagans in, in chapter 1. Do you understand that? that? I want you to understand that as we go through this. So you need to remember this. That's why in Matthew 23, Jesus rails against the Pharisees. He calls them, you hypocrites. Here's what you do. And he goes on and on several, um, at least seven or eight times to tell them what hypocrites they are because here's what they tell people to do and yet here's, they do the exact same thing. So when Paul talks about the judgment, I do want to talk about that for a moment. I know that leads into hypocrisy. That's his main point here. But I do want to talk to us about judging a little bit. Because you hear it all the time that we as Christians should not judge. Yes and no. We should not be judgmental in our spirit. And that's for sure. You know, so when you read passages like this, he says, you know, you ought not judge, you who judge, 
Be careful about that. You ought not do that. Listen, there's the idea not just of, of tota, to, tota scriptura. We take what all the Bible says about a certain thing and apply that. So we are not to be judges. We're not to be judgmental. But there is such a thing as righteous judgment. Amen? Everybody makes judgments every day. The big deal is the standard that we use and the heart that's behind that. So that's a, because some people will say, oh, you, you should not judge ever. Well, no, we don't necessarily judge as people, but the scripture does. And we as Christians have an obligation to bring forth that righteous judgment if we truly love people, right? Amen. That's what we do. So in uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this. I just want to talk about this for a moment. Jesus says, judge not that you, that you will not be judged. And again, unbelievers love that, don't they? Judge not unless you be judged. But then he goes on and says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. That's the idea. It's not that, that we never say anything or just accept everything. No, it's that standard that we use. If you're using an unrighteous standard, of course, that is judgmental in that way. But if you're using the correct standard, if you're using God's standard, you're saying, look, here's what the truth is, and here's what you're pushing back against, and here's what you need to do. Amen? That's not being judgmental. It's using that standard. Everybody judges. It depends on the standard that you use. Right? So we use God's word. That's why he goes on to say, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's the idea. That speaks to our spirit, that we, we go in with discernment. We go in with impartiality. We go in with humility, with a true concern for that person, for the well-being of other people. We're speaking the truth in love. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not being judgy or judgmental. So don't, don't let people put you in that place, say, oh, you're just, you know, you're just judging me. You're not fully accepting my life. Wait a minute. There is a standard there that we come before. So in, Matt, in uh, John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What's that right judgment? It's the word of God. It's the scripture. So we come under that as well. That's our standard. And we bring that forth as well. Um, Zechariah 8, 16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. That's part of it. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Again, it, it implies the standard. That's what we bring before people. What we do want to avoid and where we cannot go is a judgmental spirit. And that's what we're what with those who love religion have that spirit of of judgmentalism that and there's a, and there's a different it's a harshness there's a harshness to it it's graceless oftentimes it's condemning right and you know those kinds of people and maybe sometimes you even you may bring forth these traits that's what we need to be careful of because judgmentalism is harsh. We're not to be judgmental in that way, where it's harsh, graceless, condemning. It assumes a lot without the facts, doesn't it? You know, those people that are real judges, they, they don't know the facts. They're not interested in the facts. They just look at appearances and say, you're wrong, and that's it. That's, you're, you're under judgment. It's, it's a, there's a superiority to it, isn't there? When you, when you meet that, judge, that person who's judgmental, they're very superior. They're very confident in their assertions about what's right, what's wrong, and what you need to do. 
and it comes across, and oftentimes there is an arrogance, preconceived notions and, and opinions that are there. That's judgmentalism. We're not there. That, that's, that's what the hypocrite does in the church. You know, kind of holier than now. I have this standard, and you know, you're just going to be condemned unless you do this, unless you do that. So it's uh, judgmentalism is laden with guilt. You know, the people are just going to put that guilt trip on you all the time, and make, unless you do this, and if you don't do this ten times a day, then you're, you know, you're, God's not going to love you. You're going to go to hell if you don't, I don't know, wash your hands before you eat or whatever you need to do. Read your Bible every single day all the time. Not that you shouldn't read your Bible, but people could use that in a legalistic way. Uh, those rules, and, and it's also unforgiving. You know, the judgmental spirit. Even if you're convicted and and you try to do better, oftentimes there's you always need to do a little bit more and a little bit more. So that's judgmentalism. And that's kind of what, what's in view here with the hypocrites in, in the body of Christ who are false professors in that way. So they're the ones that stand outside. Remember how the religious leaders, where did Jesus go? He went inside with the sinners. Now, did he go in there to accept them? Did he say, oh, you guys are cool. Those guys are harsh out there, but you guys are all right. What you're doing? No, 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 no. They were sinners who needed grace. So Jesus went in while the religious leaders stood outside and said, why did your master go in there and eat with those sinners? You know, we're not like that. Those guys are, right? Jesus said to them, you need to look at yourself. I've come to, to, to heal the sick, but go and learn what that means. That's, that's judgmentalism. Uh, they're the ones who go around Samaria, not through Samaria. You know what that means? When people would travel from, from north to south or south to north in Israel, Samaria was that middle place, and, and it was people from all different places that were in there, all different religions, syncretistic religions and so forth. So you wouldn't go through if you were a good Jew. You would walk around. You would avoid that neighborhood. I'm not going to go there because those people are sinners. So we, we tend to walk around that, just judging in that way. Jesus went through Samaria, didn't he? Right through. Spoke to the woman at the well and then the Samaritans after that. That's the spirit that we need to have. We don't wait for uh, change in behavior before offering the grace of the gospel. It's a big deal. Because it's easy to stand outside and say, oh, you sinners over there. I'm the good one in here. You're the ones that are bad. Change and then come and see me. No, 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 no. We go in. Not affirming, not embracing, but bringing the gospel of life. Amen? So that, I wanted to talk a little bit about that idea of judgment and being judgmental and righteous judgment. Because some people are confused about that. But often behind that spirit of, of judging, or underneath that, is what, what you so often find is hypocrisy. And again, that's a, that's a big deal. Look over uh, at verses in Romans 2, at verses 21 through 24. And we'll talk more about this next week. But he says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that's what, I, that's what he's saying. Sometimes it's right when people say you are a bunch of hypocrites in that way. You're holier than thou in your way. We have to avoid that. We can't be like that. Now look, as Christians, if you're truly converted, in our sanctification, we all struggle with indwelling sin, right? And part of that sin at times is hypocrisy. And true Christians absolutely can be guilty of having a judgmental spirit and with hypocrisy. And yet, we preach the truth we preach that standard even if we don't always live up to that standard. Do you understand? 
We still do that because we are being sanctified. And so when we do commit sin, whether it's hypocrisy, judgmentalism, whatever the sin is, what do we do? We repent. Do you repent of your sin? Do you feel your sin? Do you confess your sin? Are you contrite over your sin? Right? Do, you, do you turn to the Lord and truly seek forgiveness, or is it not a big deal to you? That says a lot about your relationship to Christ and, and where you fall in this, with this idea. Because the hypocrite sees the sins in others and is very eager to point them out. But then they indulge in the same or similar sins without thinking twice, without remorse, with no repentance, and they're only sorry if they get caught. That's a big deal. That's, that's, that's the hypocrisy. You know, when you're preaching against this or teaching against that, and then you do the same thing just so willingly, just, you know, kind of all the time without feeling it, without, no, without turning from it. So uh, it's nothing new. Even in the Old Testament, we get passage after passage, but Ezekiel 22, 26, her priests have done violence to, the, to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the, between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbaths. So to that I am profaned among them. Here are the priests. They're supposed to be teaching. They're supposed to be preaching. But what are they really doing behind that? They're profaning the Sabbath. They're profaning the Lord. We have pastors all over the place and upstanding, respected Christian leaders who preach against sexual sin and yet who revel in it. And we can name names. It doesn't take long to, to find out how many people that we've respected, that we've loved, that we looked up to. Behind that, we see that they're just steeped or have been steeped in that kind of sin. That's hypocrisy. You can't preach against it and then go on doing it without, without remorse, without repentance. Right? Not that we don't fall into sin as Christians, but we truly own that sin. The hypocrite doesn't do that. You understand? And they walk around holier than thou in that way. We have pre preachers that teach against greed all the time. You shouldn't be greedy. You should be generous. You should do this, do that. But how many preachers love the money and just revel in that money and want more money and demand the congregation gives them more and more money and live the way they want to live? See, that's hypocrisy. It's, it's, the Lord hates that. We hate that within the church and the unbelievers. It's a terrible witness. They're, they're, they have a point when they see that. We speak against pride all the time as the pastors preach against it. We should be humble. We should be gracious. But how many pastors, how many ministers love the attention? They do. They love the power that they, that they have. They love to wield that power over their congregation. They love it. See, that's hypocrisy. That's a sign of what's going on here. You guys say this, but here's exactly what you're doing. Now, it's not just the leaders in the church, but it's the people in the pews as well. How, about, how many of us, we rail against what's happening in the world around us. We hate the immorality that's all around us. We can't stand it. And yet so many live lives that are just wildly inconsistent and wildly hypocritical, right? So you're sitting here in church in the morning, but later in the afternoon or tonight, you're on Bumble trying to hook up with somebody. That's hypocrisy. That can't be. Oh, we hate immorality, but then we join right in and we go right along with it without a big deal, not thinking it's too big of a deal because I'm doing it and I still go to church though. We have no problem um, being inconsistent that way. We, 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 we talk about the, the world how awful it is, but so many of us have no problem indulging, watching, listening to, tuning in to things we ought not to do. And we talk about our freedom in Christ, and absolutely we have freedom in Christ. We don't want to be legalistic, but we want to honor Christ. 
in every single way, the things we watch, the things we say, the things we do, the things we bring into our hearts and lives, don't we? Amen. So, so we are told in Galatians 5.13, look, you've been called to freedom, brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That's what we ought to be doing. I'm not feeding the flesh because I have the freedom to watch, to listen, to do, but I'm not going to go there. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4 says this, but among there, there must not even be the hint of sexual morality or any kind of impurity, of greed, because of these, these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, rather thanksgiving. Do you understand? See, that, that's that hypocrisy. And we're not just doing it for the unbelievers. We want to be faithful unto the Lord first and foremost. But as, as we are faithful to him, the world's going to see that. So, so the, the unbelieving world can condemn us for a lot of things. Oh, you're so harsh. Oh, you're this. When in fact, we're being loving and truly bringing forth the gospel. And that's okay if they hate us as we're loving them with the gospel of Christ. But when we give them that reason to, and they're actually right, that's what hurts, doesn't it? So we have to make sure we're not living in this way. And if you are living in this way, you really need to examine your heart to say, am I truly in Christ? Am I really loving him? Or am I just one of these people that Paul's talking about here? Right? That I'm, that I'm living very inconsistently. We talk about instability in the family as a church. We hate what's going on in, in the culture and, and what's happening to the family. But how many Christians or, or people who profess Christ are having affairs within the churches? How many people are getting divorced within the churches that claim that they're in Christ? How many people are just pursuing their careers at the expense of their families? Where's the difference? What's the difference? That's, that's hypocrisy. We talk about man's inhumanity to man, how evil the world is. Yeah, that's true. But how many of you are so vindictive? How many of you are so hurtful? How many of you are so hateful? See, we just do it with a smile and a Bible verse. But that's the hypocrisy that he is speaking to. Don't listen. Paul was saying here, don't misread God. He goes on to say, um, verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge and practice such things, Yet you do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God. Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Listen to this. Don't misread God. Don't take for granted, because up to this point, he's with, he has not withheld blessing from you. Right? I'm living this way. I kind of know that I'm living in, in ways that are you know, hypocritical and, and judgmental. And, but, but you know what? Nothing bad happens to me right now. God's still, I'm still doing okay. Things are still good. He hasn't struck me down. Like, you know, he hasn't struck you down just yet. So he must be rather pleased with you. No, no, no. Listen, don't, don't, don't be fooled by that. You maybe think that God's, if you're living in this way, you maybe think, you know, nothing's bad's happening. Uh, things are still good. God's still blessing. I'm still all right. When in fact, he's giving you time He's giving you opportunity to repent and to believe in him and to walk in true and genuine obedience. Don't mistake that. Don't mistake the silence of God that you continue to be blessed, that you're not under God's judgment if you're living in these kinds of ways that he's describing here. Do you understand that? That's a big deal. Because we think we kind of go on and nothing bad's happening. Everything's kind of the same. I'm still making money. Things are pretty good. God's blessing. Don't presume on his kindness or his forbearance. He's giving you time to repent. He's giving you time to turn away. He's giving you time to turn to him. Don't, don't waste that time. Look, man, if you're living in disobedience, if you're judgmental, 
if you're hypocritical, if you take sin lightly, if you're half-hearted in your worship, take it or leave it. Yeah, we'll go to church maybe if we feel like it type thing. If obedience is optional to you, you know what? Yeah, I want to obey, but I really want to do what I want to do. If you're not too bothered by your sin, as the scripture defines sin, he's not giving you a pass, but he's giving you time. And this is the grace of God. He's giving you time to turn to him. You understand that? That's a big deal and it's a big difference. Don't think that God is pleased if you're living in that way. Don't think you're going to keep on going on that way. He's giving you time to turn and repent because he's gracious, loving, and merciful. So you need to examine your heart in that regard because the flip side is this. He says at the uh, verse 5, but because of your hardened and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right? Don't, don't miss that point that he's... he's the flip side of this, you can kind of go on for a long time, but what you're actually doing is filling up wrath for yourself. You're filling up indignation, God's indignation. So don't be surprised when God pours that out upon you if you don't turn to him, if you're not listening to him. This is a big warning, isn't it, for those of us in the church, for those of us who are just playing around, for those of you who just think this is a game, it's just kind of what we do. We go to church on Sunday, maybe, maybe not. It's not a game. It's not a game. This is the reality, and we stand before the... Don't think that you can come to church and say, hey, I'm okay with God, and God's okay with me, because I go to church, because I read my Bible, because I do what I'm supposed to do, but you know in your heart of hearts you're not trusting. You know in your heart of hearts that you are a hypocrite. You know in your heart of hearts that you're a judger and a judgmental person in that way. Right? That's the warning. Don't think because you're in here that you're going to be up there with him. You have to be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Paul brings the hammer down because it's easy to bring the hammer down on the world because it's out there. But when he brings the hammer down on us, we really have to examine our own hearts because when we do that, that's when we come into a saving, loving, gracious relationship with Christ. It's not a hard thing. It's a wonderful thing that Paul is doing here for us and giving us this warning, this warning that he does. You can't continue to sin with impunity. You will answer. You're not going to be accepted and have that exception from that judgment because you've been in church. His kindness, his forbearance, his patience will come to an end. So please turn to the Lord. Verses 6 through 10, the scene shifts to judgment. Check this out. He says this. He'll render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It's, It's right there. It's right before us. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll stop right there. The scene shifts to judgment, doesn't it? To giving an account. So regardless of what you thought about your standing, he's going to take a look at what you did in your life. Right? You said you were a believer, but did you live as a believer? This isn't about earning salvation, because you know that. We can't earn our salvation. Understand that. This isn't about works. He's not going to look at our works in order to say, oh, you did good, so yeah, you can come into heaven, you're saved by your works. He's not doing, not doing that at all. He's not even talking about works to maintain your salvation. 
He's not saying, okay, you're saved by grace, but now you need to work in order to maintain your salvation. If you don't do good things, then I'm going to, you know, you're saved truly, but you don't do what you need to do, so you're, you're God. He's not saying that at all. That's not how the Christian life works. That's not how salvation works in our lives or sanctification. He's not saying that. He's not even saying you have to do good works to prove that you're a Christian. Some people try to prove that they're Christians. I'm trying so hard. I'm going to do the best. I'm trying to prove. That's oftentimes legalistic in, in, in many ways. It, it's, it's kind of a bad place to be. We don't do the works in order to even prove that we're Christian. But if you are a Christian, those good works are going to be evident in your life. That change that he made in you will come through. It just does. It has to because you've been transformed, because you've been converted, right? So you're not the same person that you were. You're new creation in Christ Jesus, and that's going to come through. Not that we don't slip back, not that we don't struggle. Remember that always. But we are not who we once were. Amen and praise God. And that'll be evident. Martin Luther said that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's never alone. It's a faith that works. Our faith absolutely works in doing good. So in James 2, verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 1 John 1, 6, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So it's just worthless in that way. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I want to park on this in just a little bit because we always talk about our works. There's, If you're a Christian and you're trusting in the Lord, your life is going to change and that's going to come through in the way you think in the way you, uh, what you say, how you act, right? It just is, because he's prepared these good works for us. It's not something that, that we're saved and then we start working now. No, these, these are things we do, living consistent lives in Christ. So Ephesians 2.10 says, you know, what are these good works? What are they? Now, you want to answer, when I talk about good works, you're, you're inclined to start answering, kind of like John the Baptist did when, they, when he was asked questions. What should we do now? Well, do this, do this, and the other thing. You know, be fair, be honest, be right. Give half of what you have to other people. Yeah, that's all true. So we're inclined to answer by pointing to specific acts. You know, tell me what, you know, and actions. Again, they should come kind of flow naturally after you're converted. But we can give countless passages on here's how we ought to live. Here's what we ought to do. Um, that we need to live selfless. You know, we, we could go to James and talk about, you know, seeing that poor person, bringing them up, saying, you know, if they're poor, oh, be well fed, but go on your way. You know, we, we could look at things that negatively and positively what we ought to do, how selfless, how sacrificial, the different acts. But listen, what Paul's, what's being said in Ephesians 2.10 and is implicit here in, in our Romans passage is the idea of, of the good works that God has prepared for us, that we, that we live in them. We don't just do them, but it's kind of like who we are in Christ, as it were. That that in Ephesians 2 10, it literally reads this the good works which God has prepared in advance that you might walk in them. And that word for walk that he uses in Ephesians 2 10 is parapetesomen. Parapetesomen. And it means to, to walk around, but it, it's a verb, it's a first person plural, so that means all of you who are Christians, you're listening, this applies to you. It's an active voice, so that means you're performing the action. This is what you're doing. And the idea is 
of, of walking, the walking of one's life. And the picture's kind of like walking through a field and you're treading down and you're trampling the grass, you know, as, as you're going along. And as people come and, and, and see that, they could tell that somebody's been there. So the idea behind this, the, the, the walking and of, of one's life in Christ is that wherever you go as a Christian, you should leave your mark. People should know that, that you've been there, right? And, and you, your life should be characterized by honoring Christ in everything that you do. That's kind of the idea. Instead of saying, here's a list of the good works that you should do, it's just who you are, right? It's where you're walking. It's, 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 it's the mark that you make in this life as you follow Christ, the one who saved you, the one who prepared for us to walk in this way, to, to live our lives consistently. And so the idea is not just at times. Well, I'm going to be good at times and then awful at times. Or I'll be good for a season. Or my love's going to be dependent on how you love me. And it's going to be conditional. And I'm going to get this. And I'm going to... It's not like that. The idea is just just at all times. Forget the season. Forget the situation. Whether the conditions are favorable or not, you're walking in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ. You're living the life that he's given to you, how he's changed you. So you're leaving your mark in that way. Parapetesman, you're walking around. So how's that look? As you, as you consider others better than yourself, right? Don't look out for your own interests only, but also the interests of others. Consider others as more important than yourself. That, that comes through as Christians. To tell others the truth in love, not with a judgmental or harsh spirit, not in a hypocritical way, but just in an honest way, because I love you and I know what's going to happen. Here are the consequences, lest you turn to the Lord. This is why we do this, in love. And we're not going to hold back if it's the truth. That's this idea of walking in this way. Telling others about Christ. And as they see your commitment and devotion to him, they begin to look to him as well. That's, that's the idea that he's talking about here of true Christians. Are you there? Are you living that hypocritical life where it really doesn't matter? You're just kind of putting on a show for people so they think something about you that isn't really true. There's a difference, and Paul, Paul's getting to that. So back in our passage in verses 7 and 10, there are character, characteristics of the truly converted of those being sanctified and those who will be glorified. He says this in verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. They will receive that eternal. You're coming into eternal life because you're trusting, because you're believing in him. And then in, in verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. So our life needs to be characterized by these qualities, and they will be if we're in Christ. Now, the flip side is true. Verses 8 and verses 9, for those in the church of the the hypocrites, he says this, but for those who are self-seeking, are you self-seeking? Is it all about you all the time? You might be in church, and you put on this little act that you're a good little Christian boy or girl, but when it comes down to it, you want what you want, and you want what's best for you all the time, and you're looking for your own advantage. Are you self-seeking? And do not obey the truth. Well, I'm here and I'm listening to the truth, but it doesn't mean too much to me because I'm going to walk out of this place and just do what I want to do anyway. See, that puts you on the flip side. This is why Paul's saying, don't think that you could be among the covenant community and it's an automatic ticket to heaven because it's not. It says they do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury in that regard. And then he goes on to say, 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also for the Greek. It might go on for a little while or even for a long while, but you will have to answer to the Lord. You see this section? That's why I love this, because God is so impartial. We'll talk more about that next week. But I love the impartiality that that there's access for all those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what your background is, no matter where you've been, no matter how bad you've been, no matter where you were in that way. And even if you think that you're good here in the church, there's still access to the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy and his love. Because out there, people kind of say, yeah, okay, I'm bad, but I need... In here, we think, well, maybe I'm not so bad and I'm okay. No, 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 no. We're all bad in that sense and we all need the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Paul's saying here, don't fool yourself. Don't, trick, don't try to trick yourself into thinking that you're okay when you're really not. Because here is the true answer. And here is the one who makes us well. And here is the one who forgives us and causes us to live as we ought to. The section serves to warn us, doesn't it? It warns the churchgoers for sure that there's no advantage. If you're living hypocritically, if you have a judgmental spirit, if you don't take sin seriously, if you're not forgiving in your spirit, You could say you believe, but you do not do what we're supposed to do, what we're called to do, or you do what you actually are not supposed to do, right? What you say you believe. Make sure your salvation. Make sure that you're in Christ. Make your your calling sure, as Scripture says. Repent, believe, receive, rest on Christ. Walk in the works of righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't count on religion to save you, but look to Christ alone. 